Man, that was such a Cuban announcement. You know what that means? Long. Man, those Cubans. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors uh, here at church. And um, it is such a blessing every time I get to share the word with you guys. Um, but today I, I'm, I'm excited because I get to participate and contribute to what the Lord has been teaching us uh, all along this series. As if you are uh, visiting the church for the first time, if you connected online for the first time with us, um, let me just share really quick what we have been doing for the last weeks. So, um, about four weeks ago, we started this series based on a section of a scripture in the Gospel of John that starts in John chapter 13, and it goes all the way to John chapter 17. Um, and this section is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And the title we gave to this series is The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master. Part of the reason why we chose that title is because it is believed that John chapter 13, all the way to John chapter 17, is the last five hours Jesus spends with the disciples right before he goes to the cross. Five hours in which what Jesus is trying to do is teach his disciples and every single one of us the essentials of what it means to be a Christian in this world. It's not that he's teaching us everything that we need to know about Christianity. And it's not that there's nothing uh, more, uh, anything else that is also essential about Christianity. But you got to remember the context of the text. Jesus has already spent three years with the disciples. Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus is about to leave the disciples uh, supposedly by themselves. But Jesus is about to send them, uh, to, uh, to send them into the world. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you. Those things that are essential for you to continue to be faithful in, in the midst of this broken world. And how you, you are going to accomplish the mission of God. Now, when you think of John chapters 13 to 17, you, you, you have to try to read it that way. Is What is it that is so important that Jesus needs to say in the last five hours that he has with his disciples. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but someone said before that some of the most important words a person can say are those words that you say right, uh, that you say when you know that your time is limited. If you have seen anybody seconds or minutes or hours before you, they pass away, they will tell you that that is true. Every conversation matters. Every word matters. Anything that you could give to your loved ones matters. And that's kind of what we have here with Jesus and these teachings of his, to his disciples and to all of us. Everything in sections 13 to 17 in the Gospel of John matters. One of the things that matters, according to the Gospel of John, is the necessity and the importance of us growing. In character, of us growing and changing as time goes by. The theological term that is used, actually the, the biblical word that is used to explain that concept is the concept of sanctification. It's when Christians are supposed to be growing. A Christian that is not growing, you, you actually have to wonder, is this person a Christian in the first place? What I want to do then with this section that we're going to read today is explain uh, 
about the necessity of growing, about the means of growing, and I'm going to see, you're going to see this in a second, and the effect of growing. The word that I'm actually using is the word change. Because to me, the scripture uses the word change and growing as synonyms. And this is one of those things when you send the notes first, and then you say, man, I should have picked that other word, but too late. That's the word. All right? But so, so as I talk about this, I need you to keep in mind that when I use the word change or growth, I'm using them as synonyms. And for that, then, we're going to read uh, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Could you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence to him and his word. So if you have your Bible, please go to John chapter 15. We're going to read 17 verses. So it's a long section. And if you don't have it with you, don't worry. We're going to put it on the screen for you. If you are here with me, could you please say, I'm here. It's all right. All right. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes uh, so, that, so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, um, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Can you say nothing? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Can you say disciples? As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer can call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. How about if we say those three words together? Love each other. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that uh, we pray for the presence of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, and the ministry of the Spirit. So we may be, may be able to see and understand and believe and repent and believe again. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and churches. You may take a seat. So once again, today we're going to talk about three things. The necessity of change or growth, the means of change or growth, and the effect of change or growth. Let's go with the first point, the necessity of change. 
Now, the reason, one of the questions, whenever you're reading the Bible, you got to ask the question, how do we know that what we're talking about today is the main topic or the main theme in this section? Well, John actually is pretty good about, about this, especially when you're trying to discern what is the main, uh, what is the main thing in a topic, in, in a passage. One of the things in which pastors and teachers and scholars figure out what the main theme is, is you pay attention to the amount of times that a single phrase or word is repeated. John in that end is super easy to figure out. All you have to do is pay attention to the amount of times that the phrase fruit or bear fruit appears. So we're going to show you, put some, some of those on the screen. So for example, in verse 2, it says that, that God cuts off every branch that is uh, in me that bears no fruit. And then he continues to say that there's a different uh, kind of uh, branch that bears fruit. If you look at verse 4, it says no branch can bear fruit by itself. And then later on, he repeats the same thing. He says that uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He repeats the same thing in verse 5. You will bear much fruit in verse 8, repeats it again. This is my father's glory. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. And then at the end, in verse 16... Right when he closes, he finishes with the same thing. I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, if you want to try to figure out what's happening here, right at the beginning of the text, the phrase appears a number of times. And right at the end of the text, the phrase appears again. It is from the beginning to the end. This whole section is about the importance and the necessity of us learning how to grow or progressive change. That would be another way to say it. Now, the phrase is repeated so and so many times that there's no reason why any believer should read this and think that growing is a suggestion. I mean, the phrase is repeated so and so many times that there's no reason why any of us would think that this is something in which Jesus says, you should probably consider growing. No, actually what the text says is that every believer, every Christian, every person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ must seek to grow. Actually, let me push that a little bit more. I would argue that how much you grow is an evidence of your Christianity. I'm going to put it this way. If you are the same person when you first came to Jesus, or when the first Jesus brought, him, brought you to him, if you are exactly the same person, I would question your conversion. Put it even better. You should question your conversion. If you claim to have a saving relationship with Jesus, you've got to ask that question. Am I growing? Am I, change? Am I changing? Actually, I think that the text shows you, and the context of the text shows you, that there are three reasons why you should ask that question. Number one is because in verse 8, it says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, Showing yourselves to be my disciples. Notice what it says. In verse 8 says that if you are not in the business of growing to do everything for the glory of the Father, you got to question your Christianity. 
And what the text says in the second part is that you know that you are a disciple of Jesus if you are in the business of wanting to change. Actually, let me push it a little bit more because you got to pay attention to the context. And if you guys were last week, you heard um, uh, Pastor Eric talking about the, the importance and the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you, guys, if you guys read the text with him, you might remember that the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate, which are all of those names that are given to the Holy Spirit, one of his roles is actually to be with you and in you to turn you into the image of Christ more and more. If the Holy Spirit is not work, is not with you and in you, and he's not changing you, you have to ask, do I even have this spirit? Now, just in case you're a little bit afraid, if you are asking the question, that might be a really good evidence that the spirit is in you. Because if you don't even ask the question, the spirit is not in you. Did I get your piece now? You cool? All right. This is the, the important thing here for me. And this is the reason why uh, I, I think this is so crucial. Because I actually believe that we cannot accomplish our mission here and the, in this broken world unless we have a heart and a desire to change. Why would you want to stay the same way always? Listen, this is family, right? How many of you guys hate the wrong things you have? Uh, is it only me? <laughs> that was a question. How many of you guys hate the things, the wrong things you still have? All right. Thank you. <laughs> he was going to get in trouble. Like, what are you doing here, brother? <laughs> um, like, I hate my sin. I, I hate the inclinations of my heart. I really do. I hate the thoughts I get. Like, Eric and I would not be able to be friends if he would know all the garbage I have inside. And if I'm okay with that, don't you think that there's something wrong with me? That's the Spirit working in us and teaching us and helping us to see that we must grow. Now, this is a super interesting thing when you think about this concept of the fruit. Is that you got to ask the question, why is it that Jesus uses the imagery of a fruit? I mean, he didn't use anything else, but he used the concept of a fruit. And I think that that concept is important because he points to the reality that our changing, our growing is both gradual and slow. See, we change and we grow gradually and really slow the same way a fruit grows. Actually, this week when I was reading and studying for this thing, um, I, I read about this man that gave this amazing illustration. I've never heard anything like that. He says that Christianity is like a man or a, a person going up the stairs, always gradually growing while at the same time playing yo-yo, up and down, up and down, up and down. So if you think that you have this Christianity in which everything is in victory, you don't have the right Christianity. The Christianity that the Bible talks about 
It's a Christianity in which you are always growing into the image of God. But with, as you grow and you grow, you are always going up and down. There are days in which you feel the Spirit. There are days in which you don't feel the Spirit. There are days in you can say yes to something godly. And there are days in which you say yes to your sin. That's, that's Christianity 101, people. It's like us going up the stairs while we're playing yo-yo. You're not the same person that first came to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you're not struggling. Actually, I have the perfect illustration when it comes to this. How is it that a fruit works? And what is the consequence where we don't understand this gradual and slow growth, if you will? Um, so I'm going to talk about this store, but, you know, it's not a good example because it's supposed to be a Christian organization. But, you know, that's what I have in my head. <laughs> have you ever been into, uh, have you ever gone to Aldi's? Hey, listen, it's only an example. That's a, supposedly it's a Christian organization. So I'm not saying anything wrong about them, but their apples are terrible. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, please forgive me if you ever listen to this sermon, but when you go to all this, you could get a really cheap apple that is this big, right? And you always, this is like a, like a super-sized apple. And you taste it, and it looks beautiful, right? And it looks shiny. And it's super cheap. That's why it's, it's in Aldi. But when you taste it, it tastes like cardboard, right? Now, I know, but it's only an illustration. But if you go to one of those farms in which the apples are in the trees, first of all, those apples are usually small. I know that's because every year I waste a ton of money with my daughters in those places, <laughs> right? And, and you grab the apples and you taste, and, and they're usually organic, right? But their flavor is just delicious. What's the difference? See, one, it's an apple that has grown fast because of all the chemicals that have put in it. And the other one is the one that grows slow but tastes delicious. I think that there is no more countercultural message about growing than this message. Because growing for us is both gradual and slow. You know, I wonder sometimes, why is it that as a culture, we are obsessed with big and fast, even within the church? We are, we are the microwave culture era. We are part of what I would call the fast food era. We are part of the drive-through era. We are part of the on-demand era. Era. We are part of the high-speed internet era. We are part of the pragmatic era in which everything needs to be big and it needs to grow fast. But that's not Christianity. Our growth is supposed to be slow. I think that this is part of the reason why we want the church, and other people to tell us exactly what we need to do to change today. Just tell me something that I need to do. Give me the five steps. Give me the ten steps. Give me something that I could fix my life today. 
I think this is part of the reason why we love programs, in a sense. Nothing wrong with programs, but the, that's what we want. We want something that is going to give us point A. Uh, it's going to take us from point A to point Z right away. This, this is the crazy thing, that when you think about how the Bible describes Christianity, the Bible never describes Christianity as running. You will never find that word in the Bible. The Bible describes Christianity as walking. One step at a time. Walk. One foot after the other. Walk. It's not running. It's not, it's not manufacturing. It's not creating. It's walking. This is part of the reason why spiritual disciplines are not cool anymore. You, you, it's, it's hard to read the Bible. It's hard to pray. It's hard to serve. It's, it's hard to fast. It's, it's hard to do all of these things because we want things fast. We want to grow fast. I, I want to invite you, though, that the next time you read the Bible, you see how important years are in the Bible. And the product of many years passing by in the heart of a person. You know, you know how fast we read our Bible? We go from chapter 13 to 14, and we figure, we forget that between chapter 13 and 14, there's years in between. It's even worse when we read from one verse to the other. So, for example, on one end, you read that Paul got this encounter with Jesus, and he got this crazy conversion. And then you see Paul preaching to people like crazy. Did you know that before Paul started preaching the gospel, he spent three years in, pre in preparation process? Here's a better, I think that there's a, this is a better illustration. One of the people that I, that I admire the most in the Bible, not because he was flawless, but because he was so full of sin and yet they never, he never gave up, is Moses. So put yourself in his shoes. And then you grew up, you, you grew up in Egypt and you lived there for 40 years. And then you have this crazy encounter with God. And you kind of run away from that, and then you are in the desert with family for 40 more years. And then God calls you to ministry. Right? And then the people that you're leading give you a headache for another 40 years. That's 120 years, people. And he's, he's pulling, dragging, struggling with these people for 40 years in the desert. And God tells him that he's going to go to the promised land. And right before, man, it sounds unfair. Right before he gets to the promised land, he does not honor God in front of the Israelites. And because God is a holy God, he does not allow him to enter the promised land. It makes it worse because he takes him to a place in which he can see it. This is the crazy thing about Moses, though. That not once he complains. That's why I admire him. Not once he complains. You know what I would say to God? That's not fair. I would say, God, come on, 120 years for real, 120 years. Come on, God, at least don't show it to me because if I get to see it, you know, my heart wants it. I would complain so and so much, but not Moses. He gets to see it. He goes up the mountain and he dies. Crazy thing. 
first chapter of Joshua, the, mo the memorial Moses get is this. <laughs> Moses died. Period. So the question that I, I, will, I would like to ask Moses one day is this. How did you do it? How did you, how, how did you get to the promised land? How did, you, how did you get to see the promised land and you did not complain? And I think that the answer is this. Because for 120 years, he was getting prepared for that moment. And he was growing for 120 years for that moment. I don't think that we have that patience, you know. I think that we are part of our culture. I, I think that this is the reason why we don't have patience with one another. We want you to be a microwave, ready in two minutes. And you know that that, that food is terrible. So at the beginning of my, uh, of my journey as a pastor, I was learning from this old pastor called, uh, his name is Steve Brown. He's in his 80s now. He's a little bit of a controversial pastor. Maybe that's why I like him so much. He was a professor in theology, and this is something that I share with all young pastors when I get the chance, because this is how the Lord kept me and, and helped me at the beginning of my ministry. He says that he's teaching this class. Right, and then one of the young pastors, you know, coming up pastors, let's say that it was Dean. Not, yet, not that young, but, you know, it's coming up, right? And then Dean asked ja Steve Brown this question. Uh, can you give me the answer to this profound theological question? And boom, puts the question out there. And Steve Brown looks at him and he says this to him. You have not lived long enough. You have not suffered long enough. You have not sinned long enough. For you to even understand what you're asking. And when I heard that, that's when the Lord prepared me for a long running ministry. I got to live long enough. I got to suffer long enough. And I have to sin a lot in order for me to grow. That's you too. That's all of us. And that's what Jesus was preparing his disciples for. Slow, painful growth. Slow and painful growth. That's the necessity of change. Now, you got to ask the question. All right, this is long, this is painful, this is gradual, this is slow. And yet, I, I want to grow. How do I, how do I grow? Well, point number two, the means of change or the means of grow. Um, when you look at our culture, uh, you will see that there are pr three primary ways in how we like to change. Actually, if you're a parent, I'm about to make you feel guilty, just so you know. There are three ways in which we want our kids and uh, how we want our kids to change. Now, this is between you and the Lord, so if you need to repent, go ahead and do it after I finish here. Watch here. We want our kids to change by using fear as a tool. You know what that means? 
When your kidneys behave, you say, if you do this, I'm going to do this to you. Or if you don't do this, I'm going to avoid, you're going to avoid that I do this to you. This is trying to change your kid's behavior through fear. This is part of the reason why in modern culture, even when we say we live in this uh, postmodern world in which you say to people, if you die today, would you go to hell? People would say, I don't care about that stuff anymore. Because fear does not have the capacity nor the power to change people. In other words, you could try to be, you could try to change as much as you want out of fear, but that is going to change your behavior. It will not change your heart. So fear does not work. Second one is pride. Oh, we Americans are good at that one. You know what we do? We boost people's pride. So they could change. If you do this, you will become this. And if you have this, then you're going to have this. You know what the problem with that is? That, that changes your behavior. But it doesn't change your heart. And the last one is rewards. Behave, and I'm going to get you candy. Don't behave, and I'll take the candy away. Listen, my daughters always obeyed with that one. But it did not change their heart. Pride does not work. Fear does not work. Rewards do not work. You know why? Because the moment fear, pride, and reward is no longer there, behavior goes back to normal. Therefore, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about here, he's going to give us two words that is actually help us grow and change gradually and slowly. And the two words that you got to pay attention to in the text is the word prune and the word remain. Two key words. Prune has to do with suffering. Remain has to do with an obsession. That's my word. I'll explain it in a second. Look at the pruning part. Verse chapter 15, verse 1. This is Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Pay attention there because he's painting the picture of a father that is good, that is working as a gardener. Verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that he will... Um, that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I've never seen a verse that is so um, hard to accept than that verse. Because every single one of us would say, well, it makes sense that if you are a branch that is not giving fruit, you should be cut off. You're dead. But none of us would say that if you are producing good things, you should be pruned. Ain't that crazy? Can you see the text? It tells you that God as a good father and as a good God will have to cut get good things from your life in order for you to grow. Good things from your life. None of us struggle with God taking away from us things that we struggle with. 
But what the text says is that God is so in love with you in order to help you grow that he will take from you even the good things. Because maybe, just maybe, the good things are the very things that are not helping you grow. Listen to what this scholar said. I love the way he explained it. A skilled gardener never cuts off anything, never prunes off anything that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. I'll say it again because it takes a while for that one. A skilled gardener never cuts off anything. He never prunes off anything that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. This is the reason why I think that in this side of the world, when we have so much, when we have so many privileges, where there's prosperity, it's so hard to depend on God. Actually, C.S. Lewis argues this in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, he argues that whenever we have so much, it's so hard for us to fight in our hearts that heaven is not here. But that heaven is yet to come. I remember about these missionaries that went to Africa. American missionaries go to Africa, and this family comes in, an African family, and the first thing they say, uh, they said to them and the congregation, says, welcome, welcome our uh, American missionaries. And then they look and they say, welcome you guys, American missionaries. Welcome to Africa where we enjoy God more because we need him more. Don't you think that is true? So... I'm going to put you in a spot in a second, okay? Because we just sang a song that says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Did you mean it? The, the, the prayer is not, take everything that is toxic in this world. And give me Jesus. But he's take everything. The bad stuff and the good stuff. But give me Jesus. A crazy prayer will be that we go to Jesus and say, God, take anything good from me that is not allowing me to grow into your image. That's a crazy prayer. Maybe, just maybe, we think that we want to grow. We just don't like the pruning process. And the pruning process means that he will take from you even good things. My prayer is that we're not afraid of that prayer. Lord, take from me anything good that is robbing me from exper experiencing you. I don't think that we can be like Moses and get to the promised land and see it and be okay with not making it 
unless we are willing to make that trade. The crazy thing about praying something like that and the crazy thing about God pruning good things in our lives is that we don't have the patience to wait and see what the Lord was doing. Once again, because we are a part of this microwave era, right, and we want everything fast, if God is going to take something good for me, I want to see it right now. What is it, God, that you are doing? What is it that the reason why you're taking this from me? And what the text says is that many times you won't know. You won't know tomorrow. You won't know next month. You won't know next year. Probably after 120 years, you will go back and say, oh, now I get it. The reason is because if you want answers today, tomorrow, or next week, you don't need faith. Faith is willing to trust him, trust his character, trust who he is, even for 120 years. Then one day we will go back and say, oh, man, no wonder he took that from me. You have to be okay with the pruning process. That's how you grow. You have to be okay with the pruning process. That's how we grow. Now, anybody could hear that and say, well, Hannibal, that sounds like a good plan. I'm going to try it. That's not how it works. You know why? Because this is extremely painful. Uh, listen, I struggle with that prayer. I struggle in my heart saying, God, God, don't give me this so I could grow. But God does it anyway. So how do we deal with this? And this is where the word remain comes into the picture. And the reason why I use the word remain for obsession, and I use these words together, is because remain is when you get stuck to something, and it becomes your obsession in such a way that you cannot walk away from it. Actually, I like better the translation for the ESV. I know that you are NIV people, but the ESV is better. The word that is used there is abide. Now, I know that it's not one of the words that we use all the time, like I abide, that would be weird. But the word has a little bit more weight and significance in my opinion, right? Because abide for me is when you, you, you are stuck to something in such a way that you cannot walk away. That's why I use the word obsession. But notice the amount of times that in the Bible, in this text, God calls us to abide and to remain and to be obsessed with Jesus and what Jesus did for us. Um, chapter 15, verse 1. In verse 4, actually verse 1 says, I am the true vine, Jesus. And then in verse 4 it says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Look at chapter 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, I bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Chapter nine, Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Remain, 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 remain. Abide, 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 abide. What does that word mean? It means this. That we are obsessed. Not just in who Jesus is. 
but what we have in Jesus. And this is what we have in Jesus. Is us in God and God in us. In theology, that's called union with Christ. And what, the, and what Jesus is saying, the way you learn how to grow, even as God is um, pruning our lives, is when we are super obsessed and we think about and we embrace and we remember and we keep in front of us and after us and before us and we meditate and we digest time and time again our union with Christ. That we are in God, in Jesus, and that God is in us by the power of the Spirit. This is what John Calvin calls, uh, calls double grace. When you become a Christian, not only you are in Jesus, but Jesus is in you. Which is crazy to me. The only way we learn how to grow as we're being pruned from good things is when Jesus is the one, is when we understand that Jesus is the one that gives us life. Is when we understand that because of Jesus we have life. Is when we understand that we are only we ought to be only dependent on Jesus. That we cannot do anything without Jesus. That we don't have to be afraid because we have Jesus. That the biggest reward and the best reward is Jesus. That there's nothing better than Jesus. That we, we are who we are because of Jesus. That anything and everything the Lord brings and allows into our lives is, is a good purpose because we are in Jesus. Because we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us that we can be conquerors even when he hurts. It is because Jesus is better and more sweet and more amazing and more perfect that we can face anything, anything in life. It is because we are secure in Jesus. It is because we are deeply loved in Jesus. It is because we are deeply cared in Jesus that even when it hurts, even when God is pruning, we are okay. That is the only way you get to grow. Accepting and believing that pruning is a reality. And you can only bear that when you are obsessed with who Jesus is, what he did for you, who you are to him, and that he is in you. Why do you think that we preach the gospel week after week? Because we don't get it yet. You know why I need to preach it? I don't get it yet. You know how I know? Because I still don't want the pruning. And I still complain. No other way to grow. Now, something weird happens here. Um, as you continue to read, because from verses 1 through um, 11, it's all about this bearing fruit and pruning, Right? And then there's like a pause in between from verses 12 to 15. And it talks about learning how to love one another with friendship love and sacrificial love. And then he picks up the concept again in verse 16. And I don't know how you read your Bible. When I read it like that, it seems like if Jesus was chasing a rabbit. Oh, wait, you're talking about all of this? You took a pause, a parenthesis, and then come back to the subject? Well, Jesus never chased any rabbit. Everything was on purpose. Why would Jesus put right in the middle of this section 
that we got to learn how to love one another. Point number three, the effect of changing. You know, uh, one of the pushes that I've gotten uh, throughout the years, that I, especially when we, when we say that we are a gospel-centered preaching church, is that people have, uh, have actually told me, I need the gospel to become a Christian, but then give me something else. Literally. How about if you tell me now, how is it that I can grow into the image of Christ? Just give me something else. And I could give you 20,000 things that you could do. But the power of change is actually when Jesus becomes your obsession, when the gospel becomes your obsession, when the cross becomes your obsession. And I think that what Jesus is doing here is actually giving us a practical application of the effect of the gospel in the heart of a person. He's saying, listen, abide in Jesus, abide in his word, abide in his love. And then put that into practice, into loving relationships. So in verse 12, look at what the text says. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Notice that it doesn't say, hey, you should love each other by just going to eat together. Awesome, do that. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say love each other by giving gifts to one another. That's awesome. Do that. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say love each other by being tolerant toward one another. And enduring one another. And trying hard with one another. That's love, but that's not what he says. What the text says is love one another the way I have loved you. You know what that means? Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to surrender himself for the very people that will leave him alone. That's love. I don't know any other way that as a church we can grow and learn how to be one body that we love one another unless we learn to imitate Jesus because Jesus did it first. I don't have the patience for you people. You don't have the patience for me. We can only do this when we abide in who Jesus is, in what he did, in his word, and his love. Now I can give myself for you. Even if you are like Judas. I know this is not a sermon I preach, but at the beginning of this Upper Room Discourse, if you have been reading it, you know that before Jesus started teaching, he's break, breaking bread with the disciples. And before that, he washed the disciples' feet. Who was there? Judas. And it's super interesting to me because I think if I was Jesus, I would wash your feet, I'll wash your feet. Judas, uh, you next. Not Jesus. The only way we get to learn how to love one another is when the text says we learn how to lay down our lives for our friends. That's what the church has that no other organization has. No group of people has. Now, if you notice, if you've been following the train of thought, this is basically what I told you. That the only way we can truly change is when there's this combination 
of experience, pruning, with knowledge, abiding. Right? If you really follow the train of thought, I told you that the only way people get to change and grow is when you truly have this experience of pruning that is uh, going along with the teachings of Jesus Christ, abiding in Jesus. How about if I tell you that there's something else the Lord gave us to help us grow and change? Another experience. And this is why we're about to celebrate communion. It sets it up really well. Um, when you think about communion, people usually reduce communion to just this remembering part that we're going to read in a second. And remembering is knowledge. Nothing wrong with that. The problem, though, is, in my opinion, is that you don't just grow or change by just remembering. You know how I know that? Ask anybody that has committed adultery. They remember when they got married. That's why they carry one of these things around. Not powerful enough to keep you from cheating. It's when this knowledge is tied up to an experience. What I have lived with my wife. I want to invite you to see communion the same way. You know where I get that from? First, first Corinthians chapter 10. It says that when we participate in communion, we have fellowship with Jesus. Did you know the word fellowship is literally an experience? It's not just knowing. It's experiencing Jesus in a different way. I don't know how to explain it in a different way except that that's what the Bible says. So when we participate in communion, somehow, in a very spiritual way, this means something different. It's not just remembering. It's remembering plus having fellowship with Jesus. So as we get ready to participate, the Bible calls us to do something. The Bible calls us to examine our hearts to see if there's anything there that you need to surrender before you participate. The Bible calls you to be a believer already if you want to participate in communion. So I'm going to give you a few seconds. Just right there in the intimacy of your heart. Just think for a second and examine if there's anything you need to surrender to the Lord. And then I'll tell you what we're going to do next. Lord, we know that none of us are, are here perfect, Lord. Actually, Lord, I, I think that I can honestly say before you and, and speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters that even when we think about pruning, Lord, we, we don't think about you taking away from us good things. And that in itself points to the reality that we're still in the process of growing. But we thank you, Lord, that as we grow, we get to remember and we get to celebrate and we get to abide in you and abide in your word and abide in your love. We get, Lord, to be reminded again of how much you have done for us, how much you have loved us. Everything that you did for us, actually the text invites us to remember 
that you are the true friend, the one that laid down his life for us. Lord, and as we get ready to participate in communion, I don't want us to come before you with guilt or shame. Lord, please forgive us if there's anything that we have done that will not allow us to participate in this in the right way. But at the same time, we remember that we are already in Jesus and that Jesus is in us. Therefore, communion is a celebration. A celebration in which we get to have fellowship with you again. And we get to remember. Please make this real to us. Now I'm going to ask you to please remove the first uh, cover of your cup. Now these things are uh, childproof apparently. So be careful how you break that. Then I want you to hold the bread in your hands. And let me read this text to you. The Lord Jesus, and the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now, please remove the second cover. The scripture says that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, my prayer for us is simple. That just like these elements, just as these elements enter into our system, may the good news of Jesus Christ, may the gospel of Jesus living, dying, and resurrecting enter into our hearts once again. To the point, Lord, that even if you continue to prune in order for us to grow, we never, ever, ever think that you do it because you hate us or don't love us. Or that you're doing those things because you want to punish us. Jesus already took the punishment we deserve. You don't demand a double punishment. Help us remain, abide, and be obsessed with the reality of who Jesus is and what he already did. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says.